covered the first several verses of Psalm 18 several weeks ago. So I'm going to pick up. It's a pretty long chapter, so I'm going to to try to cover most of it. I won't um, get all of it, but um, but hopefully the the big gist of it. So um, <clears throat> so if you'll look, go to Psalm 18 in your Bibles, and we'll just follow along and and go. Um, pretty close to verse by verse or section of verses by section of verses. <clears throat> so in those first six verses of Psalm 18, we see where, and this is what Reuben covered, because um, the Lord really impressed on him to talk about how we need to cry out to God, to call out to God. And David gave us such a beautiful picture of doing that. Um, earnestly, urgently crying out before the Lord in in complete desperation and recognizing his need for God, which is true poverty in spirit. David um, exemplified that so well. Um, So let's just look at um, Psalm 18 and read those first six verses. I love you, Lord. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I don't know how many of you have that, but um, it's fairly close, but, so it may sound a little different. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my Savior. My God is my rock, in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. And he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. So David states there in those first six verses what God is to him. Beautiful things. He says, God is my strength. He's my rock. He's my fortress, my savior, my shield, my saving power, and my place of safety. So what, what was happening to David here? We're told um, <clears throat> up here, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. So many times David was in a desperate situation. He knew his life was in danger, that Saul could easily have taken his life. Yet David knew he was anointed to be king. So the questions there, God, what are you doing? And so we see David wonder that a lot, like we do. God, I know what you said, but what are you doing? Um, So David was in great distress. He was facing the possibility, the probability of death, of destruction. So he called out to God, and it says God heard his cry. So... There's probably many times, sometimes, when you've been in distress, you were faced with possible destruction from illness, from, from various things, um, or even the threat of death. Some of you had COVID. Some of you have had really serious diseases that you thought could result in death. And some of you um, have experienced that with, with loved ones. 
Um, did you know that when you cry out to God, you're doing exactly what he wants you to do? And, and it seems that oftentimes that's a last resort for us. Um, we don't want to show our, our desperation. We want to do it ourselves, or we think maybe I need to be spiritually strong enough to, um, to handle this battle. But you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. If we could just learn to cry out to him and call out to him first so he can come and, and rescue us and answer us. Um, so now let's look at verse seven, verses 7 through um, 15. okay here's where God responds now this is just amazing to me listen to how God responds then the earth quaked and trembled the foundations of the mountains shook they quaked because of his anger smoke poured from his nostrils fierce flames leaped from his mouth glowing coals blazed forth from him he opened the heavens and came down man I love that remember when we lived in Florida they had these billboards you remember Dale on the I guess it was I-75 these billboards that were like quotes for like what God would say maybe and I remember one of them that said it just had in quotations don't make me come down there God (laughs) you remember that and I thought about this, that, you know, when I, when I read this, he came down, wow. And, and look how he's coming. Um, he opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. Mounted on a mighty angelic being, he flew soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dark rain clouds. Thick clouds shielded the brightness around him and rained down hail and burning coals. That's bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. Can you imagine hearing that? Amid, let's see. uh, The voice of the Most High resounded and the hail, amid the hail and burning coals, lightning. He shot his arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed, and they were greatly confused. Then, at your command, O Lord, at the blast of your breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. This is how David sees God coming to his rescue. Can you, like, who would ever doubt? They could be rescued by something coming like that. Amazing. So these verses powerfully depict God as a mighty warrior, moved to action by the cry of his servant. There are images throughout the Old Testament that are characteristics of God, characteristic of God's appearance as a warrior. So let's just look at some of those, and you don't have to turn, but uh, in the 15th chapter of Exodus, This is Moses' song after they've been delivered through the Red Sea. God's parted the sea and let all the Israelites pass through. And then what did he do? He just, you saw Charlton Heston up there, closed closed the sea back up and destroyed all the Egyptians. So Moses sang a song of praise to God for what he did. And he said in verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. 
Yahweh is his name. And then four chapters later in Exodus 19, they're at Mount Sinai. Remember that picture of, I mean, the movie just can't do it justice. On the morning of the third day at Mount Sinai, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. You know, God told them, don't touch the mountain. Who would want to touch the mountain with that going on? They stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. You know what? That's not just a man upstairs, is it? That's not just the man upstairs. That is a mighty warrior God that leaves us in fear and trembling. And then Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 through 19. Isaiah, Isaiah says, The Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm, and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor. Here's a warrior. And placed the helmet of salvation on his head. Does that sound familiar? Ephesians 6. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back, even to the ends of the earth. In the west, people will respect the name of the Lord. In the east, they will glorify him. For he will come like a raging flood tide, driven by the breath of the Lord. Now, to me, that's a hero. That's a hero. In Nahum, last thing, Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, the in following verse uh, through verse 7 the lord is slow to get angry but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished he displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm the billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet at his command the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear the lush pastures of bashan and carmel fade and the green forests of lebanon wither in his presence, the mountains quake, the hills melt away, the earth trembles, and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like a fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Verse 7, but the Lord is good. A strong refuge when trouble comes. He's close to those who trust him. Wow. Who doesn't want to trust him when you're looking at a God like that? That power. So we see throughout the Old Testament, God is frequently portrayed as a warrior who fights on behalf of his people, those who trust him. That theme of a warrior is continued in the New Testament but now it's in the form of spiritual warfare, like in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God. But that armor is salvation, it's righteousness, it's peace, it's the word of God, it's truth, it's faith, 
It's prayer to fight our spiritual enemies. And then we know 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 4, say, We are not waging a war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So spiritual. So let's go back, look in verse 7 in Psalm 18. Why did the mountains shake? What does verse 7 say? Because of his anger. Over what? What was God angry about? The distress of his servant. The possible destruction and death. The effects of sin on his beloved servant. And then in verse 9, what did God do when he opened the heavens? He came down. Verses 10 through 11, how did he come down? with the storm clouds under his feet, mounted on a mighty angelic being, flying, soaring on the wings of the wind, shrouded in darkness and veiled in rain clouds. And then in verse 13, here's his voice. It thunders. I wonder what God said. I wonder what was heard when his voice thundered. It says he gave a command that opened up, that split the sea open. So in the ancient world, the sea was used as a metaphor for the chaotic elements of creation that threatened the order of the world. But the elements were powerless against the command of God. The image of parted seas recalls the Israelites' miraculous crossing of the Red Sea when God revealed himself as a warrior fighting for his people. So now notice in verse 14, it says, while his voice thundered, he shot his arrows, scattering his enemies and confusing them. And we see that other times in Scripture where God totally, just totally confused an enemy. They turned and attacked themselves. And God saved his people without them having to lift a finger because he confused the enemies. And so I love how sometimes God really does scatter and confuse our and destroys our enemies physically maybe through healing from sickness or a threat of harm or even something like anxiety and God delivering us and rescuing us from that. But you know, many times the enemies that God destroys for us are spiritual. They're, they're lies that we hear from the enemy all the time. Like, God's forgotten me. Like, God doesn't care about what I'm going through. Like, I don't deserve God's help. Or maybe God isn't good all the time in everything he does. So those lies, God can confuse and scatter and destroy as well. Sometimes the spiritual enemies are harder to face and deal with than the physical ones. So if we know these truths, that God never leaves us, that he cares and loves us, that he's good in everything he does, that he will redeem everything he allows. I love to say that. God redeems everything he allows. We heard that a few years ago from Jim Dennison, and I'm sure a lot of folks have said it, but wow, we grasped onto that because it's so true, and we say it all the time. God redeems everything he allows in the lives of his children. So if we know those truths, we can face the worst possible thing imaginable. We can. 
We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We can survive in the fiery furnace of affliction. We can because he is there with us. We can because we know he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. We can because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4.13. So God heard David's cry and he responded. And then what did he do? Now let's look at verses 16 through 20. Hmm. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence. So, oh my gosh, I love, God reached down. After he heard, he came down, he flew down, he soared on the wings of the wind, he reached. So we get this beautiful picture of a mighty warrior God, like almost unapproachable. Don't touch the mountain because God's on it. And then we see God, the picture of an arm, reaching down to pull a little servant like David out of deep water and rescue him. Beautiful picture. Uh, I'll never forget the first time our little granddaughter, Selma, who just turned two, she wasn't walking yet. She was just crawling, but she got up on her knees and she reached her little arms up to me and couldn't talk but she, she wanted to be picked up. And I, I think about that a lot because, you know, she, I don't know if she knew, but I knew. It was very obvious. There's no way her little arms reaching up to me could reach me. She couldn't get up in my arms unless I reached down and scooped her up, which is exactly what I did. Um, so I love that picture in my, in my mind of how we reach to God. You know, every other religion is man reaching to God doing through performance, whatever he can do to reach God, but he can't. It takes God reaching down to man, and that's our faith. That's Christianity. God reached down to us. Our little arms were up, but we were still so far away from him. But he reached down and picked us up like I picked up my little Selma. So God drew David out of the water. He supported him. He led him to safety, and he rewarded him and restored him. Remember that sometimes God does deliver the way we want him to. Sometimes he just sustains us. He doesn't deliver. He sustains. The deliverance may not be the kind of deliverance that we want, but... Rest assured, it will be the kind of deliverance that he wants for us. Not my will, but thine. And so, is that the cry of our hearts? Not my will, Lord, but yours. Whose rescue are you crying out to God for? Is it yours or a loved one? Or a child that's away from the Lord? Or a grandchild? 
Um, many of you know this, but I'm just going to share a little bit. Almost five years ago, God answered our prayer, um, mine and Dale's, in a very different way than we had prayed or than we had wanted. <clears throat> we prayed every day for uh, all of our children, but more than any at the time, for our um, free-spirited, unconventional 19-year-old son, Samuel, that God would protect him. So when we learned that he had been murdered by a hitchhiker he picked up and tried to help, um, we struggled to understand what God was doing in that. Personally, I had to fight all the lies that God had left Samuel, that he forgot about him, that he didn't care about our prayers. And I desperately needed to know that God did hear all of my prayers, that I prayed as a mom and that my son had not been abandoned. About a week or so after Samuel's death, I opened the only thing I knew at that time to be truth. And I put my finger right in the middle of it, you know? You do that when you're looking for Psalms. And I knew I would find some comfort in the Psalms. I just, I didn't know what it would be. And I honestly didn't have the emotional energy to even turn a page and look. So when I put my finger in my Bible, it opened to Psalm 18. And when I looked down at the page, I looked at verse 16. And imagine me desperately begging God, please show me. You didn't leave Samuel. Please show me you were there. And I read, he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. Samuel was found four days after he was killed in shallow water where um, his killer had dragged him and forcibly drowned him. So when I read this passage, you know, I, I know and I shared with the women's retreat, I know I can't, you can't just go pluck scripture here and scripture there and say, oh, this, this is mine, but this was mine. I knew it. And God answered me so clearly with those verses. Um, I knew God rescued Samuel because he delighted in him. And he restored Samuel to himself because of his innocence. Not the way I would have wanted. Not the way I prayed for. But I trust that God knew what he was doing. And I know Samuel's safely home. I never questioned again after I read those passages. I never questioned again where God was that day. He was right there doing what he does for all of his children when it's time for them to come home. He rescued Samuel. And then time after time, God rescued me spiritually from doubt, hopelessness, anger, unforgiveness, and the temptation to just quit and give up. I'm sure many of you can give testimony to the times that God rescued you from those things. Um, let's look at verse 25 through 29. David says, I'm back in Psalm 18, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity you show integrity. To the pure you show yourself pure. You rescue the humble, but you humiliate the proud. You light a lamp for me. The Lord my God lights up my darkness. In your strength, not mine, 
I can crush an army, a spiritual one, all those things that I just named. With my God, I can scale a wall. I have never scaled a wall in my life. I watch those commercials about the army guys crawling up those walls. Who can do that? But that's scaling a wall. But you know, with God's strength, I can scale the wall of doubt and hopelessness and anger and even the wall of unforgiveness. And I'll add to that, the sin of unforgiveness. Even mine. I had someone to forgive who maliciously took the life of my child. And I knew it wasn't an option. And I have to say, my sweet husband got there way before I did, but I struggled for a long time with being able to do that. So it took four years of waiting before we would sit in a courtroom across from the man who killed Samuel, and it took close to, close to that four years for my mama heart to finally lay down my pain at the foot of the cross in forgiveness. Somebody once said, I think it was Elizabeth Elliot, but I'm not really sure. Forgiveness means I agree to live with the consequences of someone else's sin. So now I'm free to pray for the salvation and the redemption of the man who took Samuel's life and devastated our family. I'm free from anger and hate and really from locking myself up in my own prison. I'm free even to love the most unlikely person on earth that I could love. So I'll share this. The afternoon, this was just last summer, we had the, the trial because he wouldn't plead guilty even though he confessed. So the afternoon after the jury found him guilty, Dale and our oldest son Ray and I drove out to the little lake a few miles from the little town in Mississippi where the trial was held. We drove out, we took a white cross to put there at the place where Samuel's life was lost. And um, we knelt down and prayed. The sun was shining, beautiful in a forest, beautiful little lake. Um, and we knelt down and we prayed. We thanked God for the verdict, for justice on this earth. We thanked him for Samuel's life. And as soon as we finished praying and stood up, these huge raindrops out of nowhere just start falling. And like hitting, we felt them hitting our face, hitting our head. And within less than a minute, the sky got dark, and I mean, it, the rain came in torrents. Thunder was cracking around us, lightning was flashing, and you know, I mean, I grew up, my mama telling me, don't be under a tree when there's lightning. But I mean, it was crazy, and we were in the middle of this woods. We were probably at least half a mile from where we had parked the truck and walked. But um, I think all three of us knew unmistakably that God was showing us at that very place where Samuel died, how angry he was. Remember the scripture says the mountains quake because of his anger. He wasn't angry at David. He was angry at the effects of sin and the brokenness it causes. That grieves his heart. And I tell you, that day we felt like our, we all three cried. We got back down on the ground. We were all crying. 
it was grief, but it was something so powerful knowing God was there saying, I see you, I feel it, and my tears are mixing with yours. That's how we felt. It was, it was powerful. I don't think I've ever felt less fearful in a thunderstorm than I did because I felt so surrounded by God and his power and him saying, yes, I am angry at what happened to Samuel here. I'm angry at what's happening to y'all, the pain and the suffering, but I'm here and I'm more powerful than all that and I am going to redeem it. It was amazing. Verses 30 and 32 say God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true, all of them. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God arms me with strength and he makes my way perfect. I love sweet Peter in John chapter 6 when the, so many of Jesus' followers were leaving him because his teachings were so hard. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter said, Lord, where else, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know that you're the Holy One from God. They had nowhere else to go. Nobody else to go to. They had no other rock and neither do we, do we? So um, in verses 33, pretty much to the end of that chapter, we see where um, David goes from crying out in distress and desperation to being heard, to being seen by God, to see God coming down and acting on his behalf, rescuing him from his enemies, to becoming himself. If you look at those last passages, he becomes himself a strong warrior and experiencing victory because of what, what God had done for him. In verse 48, right there at the end, David says, you hold me safe beyond the reach of my enemies. There's that reach again. So as his enemies are reaching for him, God's going, nope, I'm reaching for you and I'm saving you. I love that. So I'm gonna close with this. There's two storms um, since we've been talking a lot about storms, where in the New Testament where Jesus taught his disciples something really profound. And there I'm using uh, the Matthew passages. In Matthew 8, you know both of the stories well, Jesus is actually in the boat on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, and he goes to sleep. And what happens? A storm comes up. His disciples knew Jesus was with them. It's just that he's up there asleep while water is coming into the boat and they just weren't sure that he could and he would save them. So he stops the storm and then they learn that he really was who he said he was. They learn that from seeing him stop the storm. But then if you go over a few more chapters to Matthew 14, you see the story where the disciples are again out in the boat, but Jesus has, remember, gone up on a mountain to pray. And about three in the morning, as the disciples are here we are again in this storm. We don't know if we're going to survive it. And they look out on the water, and what do they see? They see Jesus, but they're terrified, saying, it's a ghost. They don't even recognize. He's on the water. And they think he's a ghost instead of recognizing him for who he is. So when 
he said, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter, of course, wants to go out there to him. So he starts out, but as soon as he looks down at the, at the waves, he starts to sink and yells, save me, Lord. And then the scripture says immediately what happened. He reached out and pulled him to safety. So Jesus didn't stop the storm, but he let them learn that they could walk through the storm as long as they kept their eyes on him. And that's the key. Yep, sometimes he stops the storm, but sometimes he doesn't. He didn't stop a storm from us, but he showed us and then reminded us four years later, I am right here, you guys. I'm right here in the storm with you. And I'm way more powerful than anything that could come against you. So do you struggle to recognize Jesus in your storm? What if the very thing that you're most afraid of could be death, could be sickness, could be being alone? What if it's really just Jesus saying, keep your eyes on me, don't be afraid, take courage, I'm here. So um, just for a minute at your tables, I'm going to ask you all to be really vulnerable with each other. I hope you know the people at your table. But here's what I'd love for you to do. And it's good to do, instead of just thinking about this yourself, I'm glad that I have five minutes. I was afraid I wouldn't. Because it's, it's really good, I think, to verbalize, to vocalize things um, with somebody else that you feel safe with. So here's what I want you to talk about at your table, just for a couple of minutes. What is the thing that you are most fearful of? What terrifies you, like those disciples in the boat? who thought they were seeing a ghost. What is your greatest fear? And then I want you to pray, realizing that that thing you fear the most is the very thing about which Jesus would say to you, don't be afraid, take courage, it's me. So let me pray and then I'd like for you to Talk about that around your tables and pray. And then when you're done, take like five minutes and then you can dismiss yourselves. Jesus, thank you that you are here, that you are always in every storm. And you want us to know that. You want us to be able to recognize you in no matter what we're facing, cancer, death, wayward children, grandchildren, the most unimaginably horrible thing, Jesus, you're there. So Lord, help us as we talk around our tables. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 18. Thank you for the promises that you give us. In Jesus' name.